Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. The words flashed across the screen. Name, Richard Kimball. Profession, Doctor of Medicine. Destination, Death Row, State Prison. Any of you seen the original 1963 movie, The Fugitive? The Fugitive is about a man named Dr. Richard Kimball who is being tried and who has been convicted for the murder of his wife. But laws are made by men, the original 1963 series says when the episode begins. Carried out by men, and men are imperfect. Richard Kimball is innocent. Proved guilty. What Richard Kimball could not prove was that the moments before discovering his wife's body, he encountered a man running from the vicinity of his home, a man with one arm, a man who has not yet been found, and Richard Kimball ponders his fate as he looks at the world for the last time and sees only darkness. But in that darkness, the original movie says, fate moves its huge hand. Most of us, of course, know the story of The Fugitive from the 1998 remake of it with Harrison Ford, with Tommy Lee Jones, you know, chasing Richard Kimball as Richard Kimball tries desperately, not after a train wreck, which was what they encountered in the 1963 original movie, but it was a bus in the one when Harrison Ford started in it, wasn't it? And Harrison Ford escapes from that bus, and then he immediately goes and he looks for that one-armed man because he knows he is innocent. The entire movie, The Fugitive, is about vindication. Vindicate my name, Dr. Richard Kimball says. And as I read Psalm 43 this week, I got stuck between verse 2a and 2b. 2A says, my prayer often, for you are the God in whom whom I take refuge. I know that intellectually, but why have you forsaken me? I live in that space, and so many of you do too. But then notice the transition. Why have you forsaken me, God? To then he begins to preach the gospel to himself, doesn't he? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? It shifts from a prayer to God to soul talk, to thinking about why do I go on mourning? There's a shift. And this sermon is going to be as much testimony as it's going to be sermon. Because when I think about how I long for the Lord to vindicate me, I think about it on so many different levels. I think about it on a personal level. Lord, why don't you deliver me from the lusts and the temptations and the sin patterns I've had since I was a little boy? Why don't you deliver me from the family dynamics in which I grew up that have a profound effect on me now, even in middle age? Father, why don't you show me some hope, repentance and faith, repentance and faith. I'm practicing that. Why don't you show me the light? Send your light and your truth, verse 3. Would you do it? And what the Lord has shown me as I've grown older in my Christian life is that he has helped me shift from taking refuge in Proverbs. 
Proverbs or 31 Proverbs and chapters. Many of us encourage one another in our youth to read a proverb a day. They're lists of pithy statements about the truisms of the world, what God's character is like, and what we should do as people who are called by the gospel, how we should practically live. And somewhere along the way in your Christian life, the proverbs become beautiful to you, and you love them, and you're learning them so much, and then you begin to go, huh, my experience in a broken world and the truthfulness of these proverbs, though 100% true, the proverbs begin to become comforting nevertheless, but what becomes beautiful to us are the psalms that once felt opaque and distant. Because it is the, the proverbs are what help us prepare for life in the future. And it's the psalms who help us understand our experiences in the past. And there are five times as many psalms as there are proverbs. And it's as though the Holy Spirit perhaps wanted us to spend five times as much time in the Psalms because they help us, especially if you're like me and you're in the middle of perhaps life, if the actuaries are true and I'm about halfway there, if you're in the middle of life, then what? Then the Psalms become more beautiful to you because they begin to articulate my experience as a Christian. Father, why have you rejected me? Why was ministry so much easier for a generation of pastors a generation ago than it is now? Why is the role of, of my profession, my calling as a minister of the gospel, looked down upon and sneered by so many when 100 years ago it was very different than that? Why is it that there are so many good and right reasons to bring awareness to the abuses of the church? Yes and amen. We need to bring all of those to light. And if anybody in this church has ever had an experience in this church where they have had a traumatic experience, we will not keep it inside our church. We report these things, rightly so, so that you can be cared for and comforted in an important way. But it seems like right now there's just so many reasons to distrust the church. Pastor moral failing, sexual abuse, trauma in the church, division among leaders, gamesmanship, power plays. There's so many reasons. Vindicate us, O oh God. And so this morning, this psalm lays out our turmoil and also our vindication our turmoil, and our vindication. Because in the midst of turmoil, Jesus vindicates his people. Amen? In the midst of turmoil, Jesus vindicates his people. He has promised to do that. And he will do it. But you must be able to look your turmoil in the face and be able to run to Psalms like Psalm 43 and see what it teaches us. So first, personal turmoil. Personally, in this context, the psalm begins, Vindicate me, O God. And the refrain, Why are you downcast, O my soul, repeats in Psalm 43. In many Hebrew manuscripts, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are one psalm, which is why in the second book of Psalms, which begins in Psalm 42, the only psalm that doesn't have a little editorial comment is Psalm 43. And we are probably supposed to go back to the editorial comment that began Psalm 42 and claim it for Psalm 43 as well. To the choir master, a mass school of the sons of Korah, 
And while Psalm 43 and Psalm 42 sound like David, feel like David, we don't know 100% for sure if this was one of David's psalms. But what we do know is that it was designed to be sung by the temple musicians and for all of Israel to join in. Scholars aren't real sure what a maskul is, but they have great confidence that it was a kind of musical prelude or part of a musical choral piece that was to be sung. It's a song that's to be sung. And in this prayer, the psalmist cries out as though most of the people in the nation have turned against him. And he refers to one opponent in particular, not a one-armed man, but the deceitful and unjust man, verse 1. And if David wrote this psalm, again, we don't know for sure, but if David wrote this psalm, then perhaps he was thinking about Absalom, his own son, who was trying to run him down and kill him. What I appreciate about Psalm 43 is that it was written as a choral piece to be sung. Christians sing of their desire for vindication in the Lord. Because in the midst of turmoil, Jesus vindicates his people. In the personal turmoil, we don't have very far to go to see it, do we? You think about our own relationships. You think about your own life. You think about the sin struggles that we've struggled with, many of us, since we were young, and we continue to struggle with. We continue to push back against those by the power of the Holy Spirit. We fight, we struggle, we repent, we grow in our relationship with Christ by becoming fiercely honest with ourselves. And the older that you get, the more you know your heart. And the more you know your heart, the greater you see the heights of Jesus' holiness. And so his cross, which spans the gap, only gets bigger and bigger all the days of your life. And you may be growing more holy from the outside looking upon you, of course. But you know the depth of your heart more. And so we're never done walking in repentance. And we're also never done receiving the grace of God because it always outruns our sin. And it's always available to us. Our sin and our turmoil is not merely personal, but it's also cosmic. I was praying with a group of pastors in Atlanta uh, not long ago, and we were talking about the church planters of the next generation, and we were having very candid conversations about how the Lord is going to raise up men who are going to be future church planters in the PCA, and what would that look like? Many of them are probably in elementary school right now, the leaders of the generation that will precede us. And how do we do that? And we were praying for them because they're going to walk into a very different cultural, sociocultural milieu than when I was trained to be a minister and as I minister. Because the questions that people used to come up to me and and ask 20 years ago, you know, in the 90s and the 2000s, the questions were usually questions that um, had to do with our concern about uh, the morality of what Scripture says. Or they were the concern about a particular passage of Scripture and how we're to square that with how civil life is to be lived out. Or there were questions of creation versus science. Do you remember those questions that many of you had? Or there were questions about what to do with, with, with Joshua and the Canaanites and the conquering of the land. How do we understand God's passion and glory and also understand some of the really hard parts of Scripture that there are to read when Joshua and the Israelites came into the land? But today the questions are almost never biblical. The questions are almost always social. 
The questions now are, why is it that the leaders of the church seem that they can't be trusted? Why is it that these celebrity pastors that we see, that we love to listen to and have learned so much from, why is it that they fall from grace so that so many of our friends now are not in the church anymore? Why is it that... It's not that I can go to the church for answers, but why is it that so many people now think the existence of the church as the church in itself is actually immoral and therefore distance themselves because they take moral stances on things and have firm boundaries on what is and is not sin? And so one of the greatest challenges today and for future church planters is the people's belief in the institutional role of the church itself. Where is there to be healing in that? And so as a minister who lives in that world and can't escape it, and who takes the heat and the fury for many people, because as a minister of the gospel, I represent to some people so much hurt that they've experienced. I often will cry out, Lord, would you vindicate me? Not me personally, only. But would you vindicate your church? Would you vindicate the fame of your name? Would you vindicate the good words that you built the church? You're the head of the church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Vindicate us, O Lord, because our turmoil is not just personal. It's also cosmic. And we as a church need to be able to have the skills to despite all the turmoil around us to see that Jesus is the head of the church and that we struggle and fight and move toward reconciliation with us when we have hang-ups and hurts and we run to victims of abuse and we don't ignore them or sideline them. We come around them and comfort them and we say, we are here for you. And we value relationships over institutions because the gates of hell will not prevail against us. That's the turmoil that I see a lot. And I feel a lot. And I don't know about you. And me even mentioning you know, to you uh, some of these things makes you think of shiny, happy people. Or makes you think of you know, documentaries about Hillsong. Hard documentaries to watch. But they are the reality of our day. Recently, Jessica Gross published an article in the New York Times called Why Do People Lose Their Religion? And she takes 7,000 people's stories and she tries to boil it down to one and she says basically there are three kinds of people who lose their religion. Number one, there are seekers who switch religions pretty often and so they lose their religion because they are just trying different religions out. They're seekers, not committed to anyone. They bounce. Then there are skeptics. The skeptics usually have an abrupt change often in their youth. And then Jessica Gross says, and then there are the slow faders. The slow faders have slow change, usually later in life. And they slowly just disappear from the church. And of course, we saw COVID just exponentially exacerbated that problem, didn't it? And among the slow faders and among the skeptics, there's a kind of deep cynicism both from outside the church and from within the church, outside the church, this deep cynicism says, well, I've been lied to and therefore 
I won't believe anybody. I'll just trust my own senses, experience. And if that institution was predatory, then all institutions are predatory. So just burn the house down. That's one kind of cynicism. There's another kind of cynicism that actually is in the church, inside the church. And it's actually, I would say, just as damaging. And that is that people will say, well, there's a lot of good in the church. There's a lot of good in the church. I don't really fully believe it or want to make it better, but I'll just be quiet. I'll just exist. I won't commit, but I'll go. And the cynicism that exists inside the church usually draws you here because of your children. It draws you here because of the, still the cultural value of being a Christian in Oklahoma. But when the going gets tough and it costs you something, then the slow fade begins. And brothers and sisters, I just want to say, we are people who are held together by the grace of God, not the perfection of the leaders of this church, though they try to lead you well, not the perfection of the preaching of God's word, though I want to try to preach God's word to you clearly and keep the gospel in the center of every message. We are held together by the bonds of the grace of Jesus Christ. And he is making the local church the most unique organization in the history of the world, a countercultural community for the common good in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he is using you to make her better. And so if you're here and you're cynical, I just want to invite you to take that cynicism with you as you come to the cross and repentance and faith to the beauty of Jesus to this table this morning. And he can handle it. And he loves you. And he knows your cynicism. And so you can cry out to him the words of Psalm 43, verse 1. Vindicate me, O God. Because if we're going to understand all of our turmoil, whether it's cosmic or whether it's deeply personal, if we're going to be able to handle that well, you have to do it in the hope of our vindication. Turmoil and vindication. To vindicate means to set free from blame. It means to justify. It means to acquit. It's what Dr. Richard Kimball was pursuing by trying to find the one-armed man. It's what so many Christians try to pursue by doing checklists to keep them in good relationship with God. If I just read my Bible more, if I just continue to come to church more... And if you're coming to the new members class, you're going to hear this again. But all of those things are beautiful and right. You should read scripture. You should come to worship. They are fruits of the power of repentance in your life. Those are the fruits of a life well lived. But the engine of your change is trusting in the hope that it's only in Jesus that you can be vindicated and cleared and your name acquitted from the judgment that you and I deserve from sin and from death. Notice the psalmist, the way he transitions. For you, God, here's the prayer. In you, I take refuge. Lord, you will vindicate me because you are my defense, verse 1. You are my deliverer, verse 1b. In you, I take refuge, verse 2a. And then, why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of my enemy. Then he begins to look upward and send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Send the truth of your word into a world that has so many lies propagated as truth. Send out your light to give me clarity. 
Bless my relationships with other brothers who help me see blind spots that darken my ability to understand my situation. Let them lead me. Notice what else. Bring me to your holy hill. That is, the psalmist here is saying, bring me back to worship. And if you're here and you came to worship today and you thought, I'll just try, I'll come, I'll come, I'll just come to worship once. Maybe the Lord is calling you to say, keep coming. Because maybe it's in the practice of regular worship that he actually begins to heal you. And perhaps healing wouldn't be possible, it isn't possible, without his means of grace. And indeed, we would argue that that's how his healing happens. As you continue to come in faith and repentance, to prayer and to fellowship with God's people and to his table of bread and wine and find hope and healing there. Then I will go to the altar of God. He begs him to come, bring me, Father, to Jerusalem that I may praise you. Bring me into the tabernacle to you where your exceeding joy exists and I will praise you with lyre. O God, my God, why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And he lifts up his eyes and he hears the good words of Jesus who says, I am the image of the invisible God, friend the firstborn of all creation. For by me all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Oh, tired skeptic. Oh, exhausted Christian. All things were created through me and for me. And I am before all things. And in me all things hold together. I've got you. That I am the head of the body, the church, not the knucklehead pastors who have made more horrible decisions, but the churches that are faithful to the gospel, the places where we're growing in Jesus, the places that are, of course, imperfect because Jesus is the only perfect person in the room, but the places of healing for us as we show refractions of the gospel together. I am the beginning, Jesus says, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything I might have preeminence. For in me, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, not to economics, not to politics, to me. And through me to reconcile to myself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is what the psalmist is thinking when he wrote this, though he didn't know Paul's words from Colossians, because he then says at the very end of the psalm, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Though I go through seasons of doubt and struggle and I cry out, vindicate me, yet I will still praise him. Hope in God, O oh my soul, for I will yet praise him because he is my salvation in my God, so that we can say, we who were once alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, Colossians 1, 22 and 23, that Jesus is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, us, in order that he might present you blameless and without approach, above reproach before him, if you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from your hope in the gospel that you heard, which he has proclaimed in all creation under heaven. In the midst of turmoil, God vindicates his people. And this psalmist 
is drawing you in to see the place of our vindication is a place where Jesus, who prayed that he might be vindicated, knew that the only way to do that was by dying. And when we bring our struggles and our doubts and our skepticism, would you bring them to the foot of the cross of your Savior? And would you see him say, I hear that skepticism, I've died for it. I hear that doubt, I've got that. I hear your anger, I can own that. And even in the midst of an imperfect world that may grow even more hostile to the church, we stand upon the truth of God's word, whatever cost may come our way. And we say, Lord, vindicate us, O God. And yet I will nevertheless, I will hope in you, my salvation and my God. And so for those of you in this church that are in seasons you feel like are dark or hard, I just want to say, hey, welcome to the club of Christians throughout history who have been where you are. And I would invite you to move into the Psalms this summer, to let these Psalms also become your prayer as you come to worship, as the Psalms so repeatedly call us back to corporate worship, to his holy hill, to his altar, to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, so that there we might find healing and find our hope restored. Because we can't hope in God. Because Jesus Christ, the great hope of the world, came and lived for you and for me and all of his called, chosen, elected, all the believers. And he died so that we might be a picture to the world of hope. Amen. Our community can be this but we must learn how to pray the Psalms well by internalizing them ourselves in the midst of our turmoil. Jesus vindicates his people. He shows us the power of that on the cross. And through the resurrection, we have that sustaining hope as we prepare to come to the table this morning. Let's pray together.